You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Judith Bachman. She is founder of the Bachman Law Firm. We're going to find a little bit about her background, about the work that she does with growing, scaling companies. I'm excited for this. I think the sort of the legal side is an untapped or at least oftentimes unthought of kind of aspect of the growth process. Uh, You know, it's not just about contracts. It's about everything related to risk, about opportunities, how do you really manage the business successfully from a legal point of view so that you can grow and scale successfully. Some key things I'm sure we're going to talk about here. With that, Judith, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. Happy to be here and appreciate you making the time. Yeah. So let's hear about your story first. So background, how did you get into law? Like what was the story that got you into law and then then founding your firm? And let's talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial journey that you've had. Sure. So my story starts when I was four years old and (laughs) uh, hearkening you all the way back there. The very brief version of the story is I had an argument with my mother when I was four over what she wanted me to wear that morning. I apparently won the argument and she told me I should be a lawyer. I asked what a lawyer was. She said, you argue for a living. I said, that's it. And then it's the last time I have asked myself what I wanted to do. Oh, that's great. That's great. So take us from four years old to having started a law firm. What was the journey like? So when I graduated law school, I went to work for a very big firm for about four years. I was a litigation associate. That firm broke up, which is a story unto itself. Yeah, I'm sure taught me some entrepreneurial lessons and and sort of broke my naivete as to what a law firm was. After those that period of time, I went to uh, the New York office of a Philadelphia firm for two years, mm-hmm. was working on tobacco litigation, looked around and said, my life has to be something different than this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. There's a kind of epiphanies that come to people every once in a while. Yes. Yes. So after that, I started on my own and for 20 years or so, I was on my own, making a good living, but I truly was a solo practitioner. Mm -hmm. And then about five or six years ago, I woke up one morning and said, you know, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, no one will pay me a dollar or my family a dollar. And frankly, no one will care much. They'll just go on to the next lawyer. So from that time, I would call that my business midlife crisis. I've been working as any other entrepreneur to try to build a business into something more than me. And that's what we've done. Yeah, no, that's great. And I I see that time again, particularly for kind of professional services, you know, I'll I'll meet with folks and they'll, they'll say, you know, I'm, I run my own business or I own my own business. And for a solo practitioner, I always say, it's like, you don't have a business, you've got a job. (laughs) 
That's right. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you don't have other people working for you, if you don't have, you know, the capacity to deliver things outside of your time, the hours in your day, you have a job. Now, you could have a very nice job and, you, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a solo practitioner now as a coach, but I think it's that mentality of am I building, you know, a really great lifestyle job or am I building a business, a company is a really critical distinction and a, and a decision that I think every entrepreneur kind of at some points makes. And I, I'm fascinated that you spent you know, that long as a sole practitioner and then, you know, making that decision. I mean, I guess, was, tell us more about that decision. Was it, was it an easy decision? Was it hard once you made the decision? What were your next steps? Because that's a big change in terms of how you see your role, how you see your business, how you kind of design and structure the company. What, tell us about that process. So it really was a personal journey. And I, I would think that you and your practice have seen entrepreneurs through that, at least on the other side of it. Yeah. For me, I had been practicing law for a long time and felt like I had a pretty good understanding of the substantive areas of law that I was addressing. But in the course of my work, I started working with entrepreneurs, emerging companies, and maturing companies. And as I looked at them, I saw a little bit of myself in them and realized that I had as much interest in building on the entrepreneurial side as I did in practicing law. So the steps I took were, A, to view myself and portray myself as more than just me. So I began hiring staff. I rebranded as a firm rather than just my own name Mm -hmm. and really changed my both my internal perception of myself and tried to change the external perception. Yeah. That, and that could be a hard one. I mean, I think that both externally, and I'm, I'm not sure which is harder. I mean, there's the external side, which is, you know, how do people know me? What's my reputation? How do I shift this or pivot this reputation? But I think the internal one is just as hard, maybe even harder, <laughs> depending on how kind of attached you are to it and how, I mean, especially, you know, in a case like this where you've you've been doing it for 20 years, like how ingrained the behaviors, the the mindset, the kind of patterns are. What were the, what were the hard parts of about making that transition? So the number one challenge, I think, is a, is a common challenge that you probably face every day with your clients, which is learning to delegate yeah. and to let go. Yeah. Right. So yeah. one is not just you and to to serve your clients in a way that makes economic sense and is efficient and frankly will help you scale. You need to learn to delegate and letting go of that control is a daily challenge for me, but yeah. it's a, necess- a necessary thing to achieve. Yeah. And I see that a lot, particularly in these kind of situations where you have professionals who are, are truly experts in domains and experts in areas and and pride themselves and kind of their self-identity and their self-worth is tied up in, in, the, in the work product itself or the work that they do and shifting to that more kind of entrepreneur leadership, you know, founder, CEO mentality of you're, you're now leading the company to do these things and hiring people that can execute on this stuff is, is hard and can be a, a big shift. Any, any strategies that have worked particularly well for you in terms of developing this delegation muscle and exercising it on a regular basis? So I had read an article a while ago where somebody summarized their approach, which really resonated with me. So I love lists. Right. And in fact, if I do something that's not on my list, I'll write it on my list in order to cross it off. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) There's like a whole classification of personality types that do that. Right. I love it. So the advice in this article that I read was make your list. Lists are great. But then go back over your list. And for every single task on your list, 
write down who you're delegating it to yeah. and follow that as that's your list. Your list is to delegate. Your list is not to do. Exactly. And that has really worked for me. Yeah. Yeah. And a key one, like you said, it's 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 kind of a necessary skill or necessary capability if you have any hopes of being able to build a business, you know, around yourself uh, that, that is going to have value and, and capabilities above beyond your hourly you know capacity is that you need to do that. So talk to me more in terms of how when you when you decided to grow and scale or, or you know focus on building out a company rather than just a solo practice, what are some of the other challenges you ran into, things you needed to do, either things things you know you needed to do or things that came up that you didn't anticipate that ended up being important to the process for you? So the other big piece for me which is going to be reflected even in what we're discussing substantively mm-hmm. is the idea of systems. Yeah. So as a solo, obviously you just do what you do, or at least that's how I approached it. Right. Yeah. I had a, I had a make a court appearance. I went and made a court appearance. I didn't have to write out, here's how you make a court appearance. Here's, that's here's literally first. where you go yeah. in the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This is what to wear. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when you have staff, And in order to scale, whether it's going from a solo to a three-person office or a three-person office to a 50-person office, systems are really integral in enabling you to grow. And we've spent a bunch of time, and it's frankly an ongoing endeavor, to write policies and procedures for how we do things. Mm -hmm. A quick, easy example is, you know, obviously we use online legal research. So there's a whole sign-in process. You need credentials. You need to know what database to access. You need to know how to input a search. Those things are second nature to people who have been practicing for a while. But we're hiring perpetually, or at least we try to hire Mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis. And when we bring somebody in for a trial day of work, we ask them to do a research project and they need to use our system in order to do that. So we have a set of procedures, which we hand to them. Here's how you do online research in our office. And they have that and and doesn't require any instruction. Yeah, that's a key one. I just see, you know, so many companies struggle with the scaling uh, you know, scaling their business when they haven't really defined in, you know, and well articulated, documented terms how these processes happen, you know, they, they start growing and they start putting more people on it and then the wheels start coming off the car, right? Because they just don't have, they don't have the the execution side of it really figured out. Um, yeah, I've seen it on the client side too. Yeah, sure. So the emerging companies that we work with, there's, you know, the whole range of, of challenges that you might one might imagine but the most prevalent one is their struggle between autonomy and systemization mm-hmm. right so what i've observed is that there's this quest for revenue and the quest for revenue seems to overtake the need for centralization and system and systems and it's really doing a disservice, I think, ultimately to their ability to, to set up a structure and to scale. Yeah. And I'm sure you've observed the same thing. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I think it, it. I do see that dichotomy, or at least that sort of trade-off, or the perceived trade-off that a lot of companies focus on. It's like, well, just go sell, 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 and then we'll kind of worry about it later. The interesting one for me that comes up is by by sitting down and figuring out what are your processes. You, I think, you end up defining what are your core strengths and and where should you really be playing, and what are the services that you're. Really good at and that actually feeds the sales process because once you figure that out it's actually easier to sell that because you've got 
A, you've got a process, you know what you're actually selling. Uh, you've identified typically, you know, why you're particularly good at it. So you can now have some sort of benefits and what the outcomes are. Like you start to know, oh, well, I see that the outcome of this process, the outcome of this service that we have are, are these benefits. I can start selling benefits against it. So, uh, you know, ironically, I think that actually going back and figuring out my core processes and figuring out what works about them and why we're great at them can actually help the sales process if done right. Right. Well, and for me, it actually almost serve the inverse, which is on the on the strategic systems, mm-hmm. right? It helped point out weaknesses yeah. for me, right? So as a professional service firm, to me, the core challenge that all of us face is that a lot of my business development is based on personal relationships. Yeah. And that's, I haven't solved the the riddle of how to scale that, mm-hmm. right? You, If it's personal relationships, then it's driven by you being present. Yep. So in thinking about how to make the sales process more systematic, it's forced me to recognize that weakness, think of some ways to try to compensate for that, but at least it's drawn my attention to that area. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, tell me a little bit about talent. Like you mentioned hiring people and and always be looking for talent. What has been your strategy or what have you tried in terms of who you hire? What level do you hire for? What kind of skills or capabilities or fit do you typically look for? And then what are you kind of training on? Like, tell us a little bit about your experiences so far on the talent side. I just think this is, you know, service-based businesses. It's so talent focused or so talent dependent, right. you know, being able to find the right people, have them, you know, trained up and be able to execute on the process as well. What what are your experiences so far? So it you know I I've come to say that that our inventory right what we sell is brain power so mm-hmm. hiring brain power is the key the way I've built it is to have two pools right one is employees you know W nines mm-hmm. who report every day and and do the the main work of getting the the product out being responsive directly to the to clients or to me and then we have a pool of sort of on-demand attorneys who I use on a project-by-project basis, those are generally very sophisticated people who have a particular focus that a project may call for. And those are people generally that I have long-term relationship with. I know their resume, I know their talents, and I can really have them swoop in and help out to deliver a key product. Yeah. With regard to our hiring process on the employee side, I spent some time reading a number of books, including Who and and you yeah. know think of think of other great helpful books on the subject. And we developed I think almost a ten step hiring process, okay. which begins which at nine out of the ten steps I've happily delegated. So literally, <laughs> good. I don't I don't know who we're interviewing. I think we have an interview today. We have two more on Wednesday. I don't know who they are. Never met them, haven't even looked at their resume. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful thing. The beginning, the first step of the process is they submit a resume and then we ask for a one paragraph writing sample on a subject that we've chosen so we can compare apples to apples out of all the candidates. Interesting, yeah. And on the WHO model, we do a lot of sort of exploratory questions and we put a lot of stock in references uh, from prior jobs. And then the, the very last step when I meet the candidate is a trial day of work. So we, I like it. you know, have them come in, they work on a project or they're an employee for a day. They experience us, we experience them. And that really is the telling capstone to the whole process. 
I like that. I mean, so actually, we did this. Uh, so the technology company that I founded and ran for for many years was was one of our learnings when we developed our hiring process. We would have them come, and and we were a pair programming, we were extreme programming uh, uh, software company, and and one of the things in extreme programming is pair programming. So you so you work side by side with another programmer on the code, and so we bring people in and have them pair for a day, and that for me. It kind of came down to, you know, an interview only really tells you how well somebody can interview. <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't really tell them. It doesn't really tell you how well they do the job. So actually having someone come in for a day. And, and honestly, it we had more filters. We had probably 70 percent of the people that ended up not making it through that process were, were people we liked. But th- by the time they went and spent a day with us actually doing pair programming, because many people were doing pair programming at the time, they, they opted out. They realized that the the dynamic and the the way in which we work and the 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 sort of challenges of that were were what were not what they wanted or were not what they could you know they were interested in and so they would opt out of the process 30% of the people we would opt out for various reasons but but for me that was that was great because I mean the last thing i wanted was to hire somebody you know and like you know and then a week later they're like i can't do this anymore right no so, that's that's so valuable to have them drop yeah. out i mean it's it's you were looking for non a fit as much or more than you are in looking for a fit. Yeah. And the suit, the, the farther back, I, the other thing I learned is the farther back you can push that, or depending on how you look at it, the farther forward, or earlier in the process, you can find right. those those opportunities for them to opt out the better just because you have you have reduced your investment or the amount of time that you spend. And that's half the battle is just filtering out fil- filtering out the, the, the people. And you, do, you don't want everyone to be successful in the interviewing process. And I think that's one thing that people kind of get wrong is they sell too much and they do too much trying to trying to sell the candidate on taking the job when in the end it may not be a good fit. Right. Right. And I don't want to mislead you or anybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. We we have our it's really hard to find a good match. Right. Yeah. The right people, right seats. It's, mm-hmm. it's no matter what our process is, it's long and tiring. But yes. it's I've learned it is been absolutely critical you can't build a people business without the people. Yeah, exactly. And it, it it's long and tiring because it should be. <laughs> it's just like, that's just, it's the nature of hiring and the nature of finding the right people for the right job. And, and um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're experiencing anything out of the ordinary when it comes to people-based businesses. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the work that you do for clients. What, what is your primary focus? What are some of the insights you've, you've learned in terms of, uh, you know, working client, working with clients uh, in terms of the things they get wrong or they get right from a legal point of view. Give us a little insight on the work that you do. So our main focus or group of clients typically are businesses that have five employees are up, about $3 million in revenue and up. Mm-hmm. They span various industries, manufacturers, uh, particularly food manufacturers. We seem to have a niche with real estate, holding companies, sure. family businesses, uh, but it's really the more the cross-section of the characteristics of the businesses and the business owners rather than the industries themselves. And in working with those kinds of businesses, they seem to be really on the precipice of putting these structures in place that I think are, as you said, underutilized as a tool to build your business. So for instance, many of those businesses do not have formal corporate structures. They all <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I, I just laugh because I can't tell you how many times that I get a you know, someone calls me and is like, Hey, we're thinking about hiring a coach. We're like a five million dollar company. There's three partners. And I say, Okay, well, can I see a copy of your operating agreement? And they're like, uh, well, we don't really have one. I'm just right. like, Oh my god. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it happens all the time. 
Right, right. And it, it, you know, I, I can understand and empathize with it, right? You're focused on building the yeah, business. You, yeah. you want to make it go. And it seems like it's maybe something you can easily push to the side. But from my perspective, it's so critical and it will give you the platform to go further than you can get without it. Yeah. So, you know, particularly if you're successful, right? So if you're successful in your example and you've helped the business go from 5 million to 50 million in revenue and they have no operating agreement, at some point there are going to be fissures between the the partners Mm -hmm. and that could spell doom for the business. Yeah. I've written a couple of articles on this. It's, it's not, it's a question of when, not if. And it's not even that, you know, oh, well, we're going to have some conflict. It's, you know, look, people's lives change. You know, people get married, people get divorced, people have kids. And when these things happen, you you can create just a, you know, people have different situations, different contexts, different needs. They want to pursue different venues with the business. And unless you have a good structure, a good operating structure and governance model to be able to make these decisions in very clear, effective ways, you're going to destroy value, right? You're going to, you're going to lose value in the business and the drama and the uncertainty that comes with that. And and it isn't always drama is in that, you know, things end up going to court and sometimes it's, it just, it, it ends up in a quagmire and like decisions don't get made. And oftentimes not making a decision is worse than making a poor right. decision just because it ends up putting everything in limbo. Right. And so I would add two things to that. Mm-hmm. So it's not only the worry about, as you say, things potentially going wrong in the future. It's how are we operating our business today and how are we operating it tomorrow and 10 years from now? Yeah. And the idea of a corporate structure gives you the framework to get through all of that, yeah. right? So, so for instance, right, a, you would expect in a corporation to have a board of directors and corporate officers. I cannot tell you how many of my clients say, no, we don't have that mm-hmm. yet or that's too much structure for us. We don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And what they're missing is that The reason that exists is to give you a process or a system to loop back to where we were before as to how to make decisions and how to manage your business. So, you know, it's not and you can be on your own board. It's not as though you give up control. It's that you are adding voices in the room. And I think that's what people don't understand. Yeah. And it's I think it's one of the key things, too, as you look at sort of strategy and, and planning, you know, having a good set of advisors, you know, people that can give you input and inf- insight and, and not even governance. I mean, they don't necessarily have voting rights, but they have, you know, input and they have, you know, formal part of the process to set that strategy and to set those plans uh, can be really helpful, particularly when the company gets bigger and you start having, you know, things get complicated. You know, you're running different divisions and it's not something often one person can kind of keep in their head, you know, all the moving pieces and, and be able to effectively operate within them. So a good. Right. Good so, yeah. So one thing that I know you very familiar with and and would like to make sure that everybody out there sees as an alternate path or at least an interim step is the idea of an advisory board. Yeah. So, and this is true for professional service firms, any service firms, we need, we as entrepreneurs need to hear voices other than our own and we need to fill in our knowledge gaps. So one way to do that is to have an advisory board, which is a more informal version of a board of directors. You're not bound to follow them and you want to 
sort of populate them with people who have different perspectives and different knowledge than yours. Yeah. But they're really there as a sounding board to help you along. Yeah, and I think it's important to just highlight that difference for folks. Is a you know, board of directors has a governance role, a voting rights role. A board of advisors are it's a non-binding, it's formal but non-binding, or it can be formal and but non-binding in terms of you know the decisions or the suggestions that are coming out of that. The other one I would add to it is that expertise is really good and network is really good. The other one I like to see is sort of a diversity of thinking style and risk tolerance. So if I'm dealing with a family founder or CEO who is, you know, a really strong salesperson, you know, high risk tolerance, willing to bet the farm every time, making sure that they have, you know, some someone on their board, on their advisory board who is, you know, a little more conservative, a little more of a risk mitigator, just to balance those things out, at least from perspective point of view, can be really helpful. So, uh, you know, think about learning style or think about your kind of management style, learning style, risk tolerance, those kind of making sure you've got diversity on your board on those areas can be really powerful as well. And I think that's a great insight. Yeah. So what else? So that's kind of founding documents, your your governance documents, making sure that you've got those things in place. What are some of the areas that you see companies needing to kind of really be strategic about from a, from the legal side of things, what they need to get right to be, be able to successfully grow the business? So I think there are two two pieces. One is going back to the idea of systems. So you need a, a legal system as well as every other kind of system in your business. So, you know, if we go back to, to the if you look even at five minutes worth of the we we work story for a second. Mm-hmm. All right. So from what I understand as to how we work was operating and its people were operating, they were really for instance, the salespeople were told to go out and make any deal you can and you will get paid commission based on that deal. There was no understanding that the deals that they were making were profitable or unprofitable and no consideration of that. <laughs> yeah. So the challenge that they failed at was to put a system in place. So in particular, the legal side of that is you really want to have a templated set of documents. You want your team to understand what our contracting process is, what we want from clients, what we can give clients, and here's the funnel in which we want to take them from shaking their hand to start to having them sign up and delivering them great service. And I think that that unfortunately gets pushed to the side or people don't appreciate, even in the context of service-based businesses. Yeah, and I like that because I think you're kind of using kind of the, the legal lens to actually look strategically at, at the business and, and what services are providing rather than this kind of check mark at the very, very end. It's like, okay, let's throw, let's throw it over to counsel to get, you know, review this document, you know, thinking about it up front, you know, and using it as that more of a strategic review than a, you know, end of process, you know, just going to do a double check on it. I like that idea. So talk to me a little bit about, I guess, the process of hiring an attorney, hiring counsel for your business. If you're a founder, CEO, executive in a company, and you're kind of, you know, going through the process or, or you decided you, you you have need, how do you go about finding a good fit? What do you look for? Or what do you suggest people look for in terms of skills or capabilities, size of company? Like how do people go up finding the best legal help in the market? So I can tell you how it works with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I have some changes to the process that I wish I could make, but (laughs) don't have the power to. So typically what happens is, 
you know, you're, you are talking to your fellow entrepreneurs and you say, oh boy, I really need to finally write my operating agreement with my partner. And somebody in the room says, oh, I have a great attorney, call so-and-so. And typically what happens is they'll call so-and-so and based 95% on that recommendation from their colleague, they will hire the person, the first and only person that they've spoken with. Yep. So it's a lot of referral-based trust which makes sense because we're trusted advisors, right? Mm -hmm. You're a trusted advisor to the founders that you coach. I'm a trusted advisor to my clients. So you would expect that a recommendation from a trusted friend would be a logical place to go. Again, that that makes sense, but it's not doesn't necessarily lead you to the best match for you. So my suggestion is, as with anything in life, you need multiple choices. <laughs> so I would always recommend that you talk to at least three attorneys. It's like hiring. It's, you know, you're hiring a lawyer just like you would be hiring uh, an employee. You need to have a really committed interview process and to make sure you're getting the most appropriate help. You can do some of your own background work, right? Not only should you rely on the recommendation of colleagues or friends, but you can ask the attorney for you know some representative clients and see if those clients are willing to talk to you as a potential client. Uh, some will, some won't. You can also look, you can get a lot of information online. If you're looking for a litigator, you can look up and access public court records and you can see what cases they've litigated and how those things have played out. You can also ask the attorney for samples or other representative information of what they've done before. And the other thing I would say is part of the challenge becomes pricing. That is understandable, but is the absolute wrong thing to make a decision yeah. on, right? If you're if you're hiring a cardiologist to do you know heart open heart surgery, you're not going to ask them, "Can I get a discount on my heart surgery?" <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there's some people that would, but <laughs> I'm sure there's some people that would. But I'd be curious to see the correlation to outcomes. Up. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> It's this is you're doing this because you feel a need and this is critical to building your business. Yeah. And you have to treat it that way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, Judith, this, this has been a pleasure. We're going to hit time here. If people want to find out more about you, about the firm, what's the best place to get that information? So we do have a website. It's thebackmanlawfirm.com. So T-H-E-B-A-C-H-M-A-N-L-A-W-F-I-R-M.com. Awesome. I will make sure that the link is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Judith, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great insights. Great conversation. I really appreciate it. Bruce, thank you so much. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.